God bless to our understanding the reading of this is holy word. Amen. Today is Reformation Sunday, and I want to tell you the true meaning of October 31st so that we can get it in our hearts and in our faith and in our lives. Never forget it because it's an important date for Christians. You know, certain dates as Americans resonate with us. And we know when we mention that date, we know what it means. Uh, September 11th, 2001. Um, November 22nd, 1963. December 7th, 1941. July 4th, 1776. Well, October 31st is a date like that for every Christian. October 31st, the year 1517 especially for every Protestant Christian. We should know it by heart. Here's why. If you went to church in the 16th century, you probably went to a Roman Catholic church. There was just a little part of the world where the Eastern Orthodox Church was present. Other than that, that was it. You went to what was called the Roman Catholic Church. And there was a lot of frustration building up in that church. Um, There were problems and corruption in the leadership. Priests were known to get drunk and have their own concubines. Uh, Teachers and preachers were way too academic and talking way over the people's heads in their sermons, and no one understood what they were talking about. Um, Bishops and cardinals enjoyed great wealth and power, but really didn't serve the people. And people just saw the church as becoming more and more irrelevant all the time. Popes spent all their time collecting art and building beautiful cathedrals and living in luxury more than nurturing the spiritual life of the people. Now, reform means change, and people wanted reform. They wanted things to change in the worst way. Into this social and religious climate came a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was from Germany. He was very educated. He was studying to be a lawyer until... His life took a turn. Literally one night he was in a thunder and lightning storm and he was so scared that he prayed to his patron saint, Saint Anne, and said, if you get me out of this mess, I'll give my life to God in a new way. Well, he got through the night and he gave his life to God in a new way. He became a Catholic monk, which at that time was thought of the the height of devotion. But throughout his life, Martin Luther was plagued with this sense of unworthiness before God, like he could never really cut it with God, this deep sense that everything he did was just wrong in front of God's eyes. And because of this, he was scared to death of God. He felt that he could never do enough to please God or get his love. He tortured himself in hopes of earning God's love. He would fast for days. He he flogged himself in his monk's cell. He wore hair shirts to make himself very uncomfortable. Everything he tried only made his torment worse. He even grew to see God as just cruel, unable to be satisfied. Luther studied theology. He earned a degree, and he received a position at Wittenberg University teaching the New Testament. And it was while he was studying the Bible in preparation for his lectures uh, that he encountered the book of Romans, and Luther came to a life-transforming, really it was a world-transforming experience based on 
God's word as it began to speak to him like never before. And it was those verses in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 that we just read that spoke to him. Now, in these verses, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to save anyone and everyone who will believe it. The gospel is God's plan of rescue. The gospel is God's way of making right everyone who is wrong, those of us who have rebelled against him, how he makes us right with him. Uh, This being right with God, as the New International Version translates it, is by faith from first to last. Most literally, that would be translated from faith to faith. Now, Jesus Christ is the content of the gospel message, and all who respond to him with faith that what he has done is what makes us right with God are saved. Well, when Luther first read Romans, he was just perplexed about this phrase. You have it there in your, in your Bibles, the righteousness of God. He just couldn't get his mind around it. And he thought for sure it meant that only those who were righteous with God had faith. And that God punishes anyone who falls short of his standards for righteousness. Even more, he thought that that phrase at the end of verse 17 that says the righteous will live by faith, um, that there was just no way anybody could do that. And therefore, he was not saved by God. In fact, Luther said, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. He just thought, God, nobody can cut it. He punishes everybody. Well, these verses continued to haunt Luther until one day his eyes were open and he realized that the righteousness of God meant the gift of righteousness that God freely gives and lavishes upon sinners. He came to realize that it means When it says the righteous live by faith, it means that it is to have faith in what God has done to make people right with him. Faith is not something we do so that God will accept us, but faith is a trust believing that God has already accepted us in Christ in spite of what we are. The gospel is that God has done what already needs to be done. He's acted first. What we do is just a response to his love, to his goodness, and to his grace. There's nothing to earn. There's nothing that you can do. There's no spiritual ladder that you can climb. There's no living that is good enough to save yourself before God. Salvation and being right with God is something that just got gifts to us. All we can do is receive it and, receive it and say, okay, I accept it. That's the faith that's being talked about. I accept it. Luther said when he saw this, it made him feel like he was born again. And he read all of Scripture, he said, in a new light when he came to that realization. Now, this was not what was being preached in the churches of the day. There was a great deal of spiritual fear at this time. And the Roman Catholic Church at that time was playing upon it for their own purposes. One of the ways they did this was in what was called the system of indulgences. The system of indulgences, which quite simply was paying for forgiveness. That's what it was, paying for forgiveness. This is the way it worked. The Catholic Church taught a belief, not found in the Bible, but they taught a belief that when you die, you have to pay for your sins and work them off in a place called purgatory. 
priests taught that if you paid certain sums of money buying indulgences, you could pay off your sins before you die. Not only that, if you pay us enough, it'll be good for the sins of your loved ones who are right now in purgatory. You could get them out. One of the most ex- effective salesmen of indulgences was a man named Johann Tetzel, who was so good that the Pope hired him to go all over Europe and do this. And Tetzel would go around getting these big crowds and, and stirring them up. He says, imagine, he would get them to, to imagine hearing the voices of their dead relatives calling out from purgatory to have pity on us. Just pay the price and get us out of this torment that we're currently suffering. He would preach that as soon as the coin drops in the coffer, that is the moment your loved ones will spring right out of purgatory and be with God in heaven. No more suffering. Well, people bought indulgences in mass to have their sins and the sins of their loved ones forgiven. Now, part of the money that Tetzel raised was used by one archbishop to buy a higher position for himself in the church. The other part of what Tetzel raised through indulgences was used by the Pope to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was a racket they had going on. Well, this type of corruption in the church just made Martin Luther burn. And having come to realize that Scripture said the only way we can have forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God is by simple faith in Him, Luther knew that the popes and the archbishops and the cardinals and the priests were giving the people the wrong message. And on October 31st, 1517, Luther took 95 statements, 95 theses that he wrote And he took that paper to the door of the church in Wittenberg and he nailed it to the door for all to read and all to see. These 95 theses were like, uh, all they were was just a call to debate. Luther said, I want to talk about this with the authorities. Luther said he was convinced that the Bible taught that we are saved by faith in Christ's death on the cross, nothing else. Luther said, we don't depend on our own strength, conscience, experience, person or our works but we depend on that which is outside of ourselves that is on the promise and the truth of God which can't deceive us it won't lie to us in essence when Luther nailed these 95 theses to the door he was calling out the church authorities he was calling them out Now, these 95 theses actually said nothing about the doctrine of justification by faith. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't recommend you read them. They're really boring. But they came out of his whole belief about a theology of grace, that it's by grace that we're saved. Luther engaged in several debates with the Roman Catholic authorities over the next three years. Um, And he publicly, he loudly challenged the authorities based on the Bible. Now, understand Luther was not the first to ever do this. It's just that everybody else who had challenged the authorities of the Roman Catholic hierarchy up to this time had been killed. Finally, they excommunicated Luther from the church. They threw him out. And in 1521, the Holy Roman Emperor called Luther to a place called Worms for one last stand where he could recant everything that he had been teaching and preaching and writing. And this is what he said to them. Very briefly, he said, 
unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything, for it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Well, people all over Europe were taken by Luther's teaching and the stand that he took. And tired of corruption in the church and the spiritual wasteland, it had become people were so hungry for the word of God and the promises of his grace. Luther had exposed the human error that human beings have the ability to get themselves to God or even get near enough to God for him to accept them. And he also realized it wasn't a matter of God being far from us and us having to strive to reach him. The reverse was true. People were distant from God, but it was God who had come in Christ to us and sought us out. It really wasn't anything new. It was just that he was reclaiming the gospel of grace. Thus began what we know as the Protestant Reformation. It was fueled by the word of God. Thus began the beginning of the Protestant church movement. They were called Protestants because they were protesters. Protestants. Protesters. Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, non-denominational churches, um, Baptists, Quakers, brethren, even though they, they took the Reformation in another direction, all are part of the Protestant church and have deep roots in the Reformation. Well, people began leaving the Catholic church and new Protestant churches were springing up all over Europe. Now, at the same time, a new piece of technology had been invented. The iPod of its day. The printing press. Now the word of God which previously had to be copied by hand. Imagine copying this whole thing by hand just so you could have a copy. Now it could be printed in mass, and anybody could get their hands on at least a portion of Scripture and read it for themselves. Luther translated the Bible into German, into the common language of the people so that everybody could read it and hear it in their own tongue. It was printed widely, and the word of God just ran wild. People ate it up, and they came to understand themselves in relation to God in a new way. And this is who we are today. This is why who we are today. You know, the Presbyterian tradition is just a branch off of that tree called the Reformation. We read Scripture from what's called a Reformed perspective. Perspective, meaning that we always read Scripture from the perspective that we are saved by faith through the grace of God and that salvation comes through the mighty work of Christ on his cross and resurrection from the dead. We still haven't gotten over October 31st, 1517, when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of that church. The Reformation just opened a lot of things up. No longer was the Pope or any human authority, the ones to go by. Now scripture was the authority that people went by. Forgiveness wasn't something to be earned. Forgiveness was something that was freely given by the grace of God. 
No longer were priests the only ones who could serve and minister, but the Reformation reclaimed that teaching in the New Testament that all believers are priests. We're all to serve. We're all to teach. We're all to serve God. And now people knew they didn't have to go through somebody else, some human authority to get to God. You can have your own direct access relationship to God. It was a reformation. Everything changed. I think, in closing, I think there are two ways that the Reformation applies to us today. There's more than two ways. I'm going to give you two. First of all, having to do with the Word of God. With the Reformation came a new emphasis, a new awareness of the Bible. Um, Martin Luther and the Reformation had a, a motto. It came to be called, this was the motto, sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Scripture alone. There's a reason that over the centuries, people have given their lives to the interpretation, to the writing, to the translating of the Old and New Testaments. There is a reason that whenever we gather as Christians, we read from the Bible together and we hear it preached. There is a reason that it is the authority of the Christian life. For the Word of God, it says, is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Hebrews 4.12. The Reformers believed this is how God speaks to us now. And, and they didn't think that they were handling and interpreting the Bible. They thought through the Bible God was interpreting and handling us. You know, there's no growth in the life with God without the Scriptures. There is no growth without the Bible. And the more we dig into it, the more we will grow. Nothing beats time spent in God's Word. We need to read it. We need to hear it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to study it. We need to think about it. This is where the nutrients for the Christian life is, right here. I suspect that the spiritual shallowness and the lack of faith that characterizes the age we live in is a result of biblical illiteracy and a poor interaction with God's Word. We cut off the main way that God speaks to us, and then we wonder why we feel so far from Him or why we don't have any strength in our faith. You show me a person who regularly reads and encounters the words of the Bible, and I will show you a person, not someone who's perfect, not someone who doesn't struggle, but someone whose life reflects Jesus. The preaching and the teaching of the Word was a hallmark of the Reformation. When you read the Bible, do you listen for God's voice, God speaking to you? When you listen to a sermon, a message, do you just want some good ideas, or do you listen for the voice of God? There's hardly a day that goes by that I don't myself get into God's Word in some way, and not for my pastoral duties. I do it for myself. Because I know that I do not live by bread alone, but I live by every word that comes from God's mouth. It was the preaching and the hearing, and because of the printing, the reading of the word of God that set off a reformation through the world. And you know what? It will set off a reformation in us too. Second way the Reformation applies to us, the power of the gospel. 
if you have ever felt you just can't cut it with God or that you just aren't religious or spiritual enough or you've ever wondered, will I ever be good enough in God's eyes? There's good news. God has done what we could never do. He has made up for our sin, which causes a, an astronomical distance between he and us, and he brings us to him. Now, I know in our modern times, we explain away sin with you know, psychological and sociological and genetic reasons for our behavior. I know it's not fashionable anymore to talk about sinful behavior. I know we say, well, sin is too pessimistic. We really want to feel better about ourselves, not worse. You know, the good news of the message of the gospel is the freedom that comes in Christ when we are absolutely honest. The power of the message is that it doesn't make excuses or rationalizations, but in honesty we can say, you know what, I'm wrong with God. I am wrong with God. And there is a freedom when you are finally able to say, I don't have to carry it anymore. God forgives me and God helps me. And you say that every day of your life. The power of the gospel is not only it diagnoses the problem, it gives the cure for the problem. God has come himself in Jesus Christ to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. And he gives us his righteousness. As it says in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. You might say, but I don't feel right with God. It's not our feelings that determine our relationship with God. It is what God has said about us. And his decision about us that counts. And he says that we're forgiven right and loved with him you don't have to earn it you don't have to become worthy for it in some other way it is a free gift of grace through jesus christ and that is the gospel message that we as christians stake our lives on that is the gospel message that we believe it isn't necessarily popular in society it's not taught in the classrooms of our universities it's not considered necessarily in the boardrooms where great powerful decisions are being made but god says this is the truth about god and it's the truth about us here we stand. Can't do any other. You know, one of the things about Martin Luther is that he was a songwriter. Did you know that? He wasn't only a theologian, a Bible teacher. He was a songwriter. He wrote a ton of songs. He used to go to the taverns and the bars and find out what the tunes were, and then he would take the words and he'd change them. And use them in church the next Sunday. Change them to Christian words about God. Can you imagine taking, you know, a song from the Rolling Stones or, you know, Lady Gaga or whoever, and then coming next Sunday morning and singing those, you know, the same melody, but the words of, uh, that are about Jesus? It didn't always go over well, by the way. But a lot of times it did. Probably the, yeah, the most famous song he ever did was A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, that great hymn. The original uh, title of that uh, great hymn was, uh, what was it? it was A Safe Stronghold, Our God Is Still. A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. It kind of became the anthem of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. We're going to sing that great hymn to close this morning. And I want you to really pay attention to the words. You've probably sung this hymn many times. 
But these words are so strong. Really pay attention to them. Really get them into your heart. Pay attention to what you're singing. As we sing together, a mighty fortress is our God, that great hymn by Martin Luther.